anyone claiming that America's economy is in decline is peddling fiction. I've abandoned free market principles to save the free market system. But we have to pass the bill so that you can uh, find out what is in it. Raising the debt ceiling does not increase our debt. It does not somehow promote profligacy. I know words. I have the best words. Nobody knows the system better than me, which is why I alone can fix it. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome back to a brand new episode of Peddling Fiction. The video is on once again, but you're not just going to have to stare at my mug this time for the next hour. I have a very uh, important guest. I'm excited. I'm so excited to bring on and talk to this guy. Um, I think I teased it in the last episode, but we've got the professor, Michael Rechtenwald, on the show today. And I'm going to bring him on here in just a minute. Um, I, I don't think I have too many more announcements or anything like that to go through. Just that um, this will drop on Friday. I'm actually recording this Thursday afternoon. So if Justin does his job properly, this should be out tomorrow afternoon sometime. So we will be doing the happy hour, our regularly scheduled Friday night happy hour and that's going to start at 7.30 p.m. Central Standard Time. And if you would like to get in on that, you just go to peddlingfictionpodcast.com, click on the support the show tab, and set up a recurring monthly donation that will get you into the program where you can drink with me every other Friday. And it really is a lot of fun. So um, we, we have a great little group in there, but they're, the more the merrier as far as I'm concerned. So um, go ahead and do that. And uh, without further ado, let's bring him on, the man that needs no introduction to libertarians. If you are familiar with me and not familiar with him, I don't know what you're doing wrong in life, but he is the author of almost a dozen books, I think. He was a professor for many years. He is the libertarian professor, Michael Rechtenwald. What's going on, man? Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Now, um, for those of, I, I can't imagine any of my listeners would be familiar with me and not you. Um, your list of accolades is nothing short of impressive. You've got like, what is it, a dozen books now? 11 at this juncture, yeah. 11 books. Um, you, you taught at the university level for a, a long time. 25 years. Yeah. 25 years, wow. Okay, so can we just go into that thing? Let's start off there and, and just talk a little bit about how it was, uh, what it was like teaching at the university level from, you know, and the transformations you, you sort of might've seen from when you started and, and to when, when you ended. Yeah. I mean, it's a good point to start at like my graduate work, which I talk about in springtime for snowflakes. Um, so when I was, I was 33 years old and I decided to, I was in advertising actually. And um, I, I did well in it, but it burned me out and it's a burnout career. So I decided to go back to graduate school, go to graduate school, go back to school and get a, um, in order to teach in a university. And, and uh, English was the 
subject area that seemed most appropriate because I, I was writing. And uh, so I went back to get a, uh, a master's degree in English. And uh, so in the, that, that's, uh, that left a 10 year interim between my undergrad in 1983 and uh, my graduate studies which started in 1993. So when I went back to the English, into the discipline of English, in 1993, I noticed that it was entirely trans had been entirely transformed from what it had been in uh, my undergraduate studies. There, you know, in undergraduate studies, we studied literature, and, and you read, you know, say Dickens, or you read, you know, whatever. I was mostly interested in uh, modernism and stuff like that. But I got back into graduate school, and um, it had transformed entirely. And I noticed that there was a whole different set of things that they were reading. It had to do with uh, critical theory, social, uh, postmodern theory. And so basically it was reading all these theorists. And uh, I started reading postmodern and uh, Marxist uh, texts. And I got drawn into it little by little. Uh, and uh, I, you know, became Marxist, uh, became a Marxist and with a postmodern inflection, if you will. And uh, so by the time I finished my PhD, <clears throat> I was pretty much fully indoctrinated into leftism. And I did my work, uh, it was in an English department at Carnegie Mellon, but I really did my work in the history of science and uh, my dissertation was in the history of science. When I started teaching, uh, uh, the uh, well, just in terms of graduate classes, for example, I noticed that th there was a lot of politics, a huge amount of politics. It was, uh, uh, I noticed a little bit of discrimination for being a white male, a white straight male, no less. Uh, three yeah, strikes against you, and uh, and I noticed that you know I mean th there was a lot of politics going on. I mean it was like feminism, Marxism, and uh, basically you had to be some form of leftist. Uh, I chose Marxism <laughs> because it, it seemed to be more analytical and it, it seemed to have more grist, more more uh, more material to to, to deal with. And uh, so when I started teaching, you know, this whole woke thing hadn't really taken off too much yet. Um, but by 2016, really everything accelerated. And I noticed that social justice was now just shot through the whole policies and administrative, uh, the administrative lexicon and uh, that everything was like there was a rapid shift going on and they started instituting these bias reporting hotlines where students could uh, report you for a bias infraction to uh, this central uh, bias response team and uh, the syllabi was now they were asking you to mark your syllabi up with uh, uh, trigger warnings so that, you know, if something was disturbing a student, you know, you, or it could be disturbing you, 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 put, you, had, you know, they were asking you to put trigger warnings on, on them and that they were instituting these safe spaces 
where people could go to get away from thoughts and ideas they didn't like or found dangerous or you know otherwise uh, harmful. Uh, so it, it really took off. I think Trump was the biggest catalyst of this. Um, so I had been a Marxist at this point. I was uh, fully Marxist, like a left communist, as I, I thought of myself. And that is, I was, uh, uh, I, I often say left of the Bolsheviks, but it, it really had to do with being left authoritarian of the Bolsheviks. I, I've, I thought that the uh, working class could overcome the capitalist class or should and that it would take over the social order, uh, the means of production, the state, et cetera, et cetera. And that, you know, it could dissolve the state and be, you know, become Kermit, to, you know, the state would be coterminous with the people and therefore effectively wouldn't exist. But in, in anyway, that, that was my politics and I really opposed identity politics for various reasons. I thought it was, uh, a diversion and also uh, a particularism that I thought was really dangerous and bad for working class politics for dividing the working class and also fixating on these different identity groups. And, uh, you know, I, I, I used to say they weren't really interested in overthrowing capitalism. They just wanted to reflavor the bourgeoisie. Um, and, <laughs> and, uh, that, those were the kind of critiques I made. I, I wrote pieces for various Marxist uh, news, you know, um, outlets, um, published, you know, but I was publishing my scholarship at the same time. My, my scholarship wasn't in Marxism. My scholarship was in uh, secularism and the history of science and, and things like that. So whenever I came out against the social justice creed as such, and what was happening in the university. And I did this interview for the, well, I started this Twitter account, the anti-PC NYU prof. And I started to blast some of these things. And all of a sudden I was, I was uh, basically personifying a, a different vantage point, a different viewpoint. And I noticed that I, sh you know, I shifted with it. And uh, I started to see the whole left as part of the same cabal and they attacked me after I was interviewed in the New York uh, University student newspaper. Uh, these social justice mob, the social justice mob within my department came after me with like a, a vitriol and a hatred that was unbelievable. And so I, I started to see, and then also off, off out of the university, I was being attacked by all these leftists online including communists. So the, the identity politics people, the communists, the, the woke mob, all of them came after me at simultaneously. Uh, part of the things that I did wrong, according to them, is I appeared on Fox News. Uh, uh, <laughs> and that was unforgivable. Plus, my handle was the uh, anti-PCNYU prof, but I called myself the deplorable NYU professor on Twitter. And that was it. Uh, that means I was a fascist. I was a white supremacist. I was uh, uh, all these horrible things. And they called me all these things. And uh, basically, I had made this criticism in the newspaper in an interview. I made it from the left. 
and they still came after me. And then I started saying, seeing that they were part of this huge mob that there was no real distinction between these different milieus of the left. They were all against me uh, and they came after me real hard. So I decided that uh, the left really, I had nothing further to do with them. I wanted no further involvement. Yeah, that's interesting because even though you were a full-blown Marxist, if you're not 100% on board with their crazy agenda and no matter how crazy it gets, you have to go along with it or they just come after you and there just really is no satiating those people. It's, it's oh. pretty unbelievable. And it drives me crazy when especially libertarians try to um, try to appeal to them in, in some way, because the, the second you go, you know, for private property rights or something like that, like th that's it. it. It's over. Right. Exactly. The other thing I was criticizing was transgender ideology, which I found really ludicrous, you know, that I had to go along with this thing that I was a cis white, you know, I was somehow now this new designated category of cis. And I was, I, I was like, I rejected this whole thing. It's like, I don't, what is this new nomenclature to describe me? And why is it bad? You know, all of a sudden this cis thing was being denigrated as some sort of a bad thing and transgenderism was being elevated. And I called it transmania. And they, they came after me for that because I think it's a cultural mania that's really spreading. And yeah, property, I wasn't at that point yet. Uh, I, it wasn't until I started reading Mises. Uh, I started reading Mises at somebody's suggestion. I forget who. And I was immediately, uh, well, not immediately, but I got, I got into um, socialism, um, a social and economic uh, analysis by Mises. I think that's the correct, correct title. And he just demolishes so, uh, Marxism. Yeah. I, I just relished it because, frankly, I had been imprisoned in this. It, it, it had been so imprisoning. It, it had completely shackled my mind. And I didn't realize it until I broke out of it. And wh what a sense of liberation it was to be freed from this leftism, which is always negative and everything in life is horrible. It's all due to capitalism. You know, going to the grocery store and being faced with these innumerable choices is an evil thing. Oh my God. And look at all these toothpaste brands. Uh, the commodification is terrible. All, all this kind of stuff. And it just makes life a misery, you know, because you, you're constantly battling all things. And that's really what they are about. You know, it's the ruthless criticism of everything existing, as Marx put it. And you have, you know, you just have to be this kind of constant malcontent. And um, whenever I was liberated from that, it was, it was like, I can't even tell you the exhilaration that I felt. And, um, and I just, I, I read Mises and I, I uh, and other critiques, Rothbard, uh, uh, Lou Brockwell, frankly, and uh, others. And uh, I just was so uh, blown away. I, it just blew away all these, all the, um, all the ideological uh, barriers to getting out of that leftist standpoint. And um, finally being able to say what I actually think. 
that was a big, big liberation because you weren't allowed to say certain things. Like you couldn't talk about transgenderism or you couldn't talk about um, various, uh, these categories, these, I call them snowflake totalitarians because they weaponize their fragility and use that as a, a way to suppress your speech in effect. Um, so th that was just, that, that's the transformation in a nutshell. And that's pretty recent, right? What what year are we? Well, at? it started in 2016, and I would say by within within days, I I left I left the left within minutes at one point, and then uh, well, you know, over the course of like a few weeks, because the after, with the attacks, and then my transformation was first to like civil libertarian, and then. It basically, you know, civil libertarian the ideas of free expression, individual autonomy, and all that, and then finally uh, the economic aspect with the engagement with uh, the Austrian school in particular, and uh, then uh, it was all holds no holds barred at that point, and uh, so over the course of a year, I was completely transformed into a from a Marxist to an Austrian economic libertarian. Yeah, yeah, it, it gives me hope going forward because, you know, I didn't see a lot of, I didn't come to libertarianism as sort of like a, a reaction to, to something else, but um, it was a significant event that brought me into it. You know, it was the 2008 financial collapse and that's when, when I found the, the whole Austrian school of economics and then I went down that rabbit hole. And one of the things you talked about in, in your speech that you gave at the, at the Mises uh, bash was that um, you're, you're going to start seeing a lot more people resisting these lockdowns, resisting this totalitarianism. And hopefully we can funnel mm -hmm. that into more liberty and yes. libertarian uh, movement. Yeah, that's what I think. And I said that in my talk at the human, uh, at the, uh, human action bash that this is a real opportunity uh, for libertarianism. But, and I think in particular, the Mises caucus of the Libertarian Party, uh, because I, don't, I think, I don't know what happened to the party in general or whether this, because I haven't tracked the history of it, but it seems to me that after Bernie Sanders got you know, ripped off by Hillary Clinton, I think for the nomination in 2016, I think a lot of Bernie boys absconded from the uh, Democratic Party and went into the Libertarian Party. Apparently, something happened where you have all this woke sh wokeness shot through yeah. a good contingent of the Libertarian Party. And I, I can't even talk to these people because I don't, I don't know what they're talking about in terms of how this is libertarianism. It, to me, it sounds like the same old leftism that I left, you know. Yeah. Yeah, and it is. Um, it, it was very frustrating to watch the the Libertarian Party over the last four or five years, with just the the messaging, the candidates that they were putting up there, uh, their their Twitter account, all, all that oh, stuff. Twitter account is intolerable. Yeah, it, and it's just I, I'm really excited about what's going on with the the Mises Caucus and this takeover. Um, that it couldn't come at a better time. Like this. If we're not going to to stand up and resist this and have the right 
uh, people delivering the, the message of, of proper libertarianism, if you want to call it that, or true libertarianism. Yeah. Uh, we're not going to do that right now. We don't have a prayer. No, this is the time. And I think that the COVID totalitarianism, as I call it, or the woke COVID totalitarianism, because I think these woke-topians are the same people as the Branch Covidians, as I call them. Mm-hmm. Um, they're both, to- <laughs> they're, they're the same people that are, that are locking down speech, that are trying to lock people in their, in their homes, that are trying to lock people with masks on. They're the same authoritarian crowd. And this authoritarianism, this totalitarianism, I think, is uh, a moment that actually provides a massive opportunity for uh, for liberty-minded people to coalesce and um, to strike back and to form a massive contingent that could overcome this, because this is a movement that is the movement to uh, install this kind of liber- this kind of totalitarian state is uh, quite daunting and uh, quite, uh, it's really a pernicious development, is it not? Yeah, yeah. Well, they're coming at us from like every angle, right? You have the government, which I used to think was the biggest problem, but now they're they're teaming up with, with corporate America. And then they've almost like deputized all of these random people to go around who had no authority and had nothing going on in their lives. I've never accomplished anything, but now they can go around and sort of boss people around and wear yes. a mask and you're not social distancing. And that makes them feel virtuous and like they've accomplished something. They're helping. Yes, yeah, exactly. I've said they're state agents in effect. They're being deputized as state agents to run around and enforce these state dicta. And they love it. They relish it because I guess they've never had any real authority. And they've never, like you said, many of them don't rely on any kind of accomplishment. So wearing a mask is this um, sign of something. Well, so many things, servience, but also compliance, but also authoritarianism and uh, enforcing it on other people, the mask and the the other mandates. and relish, they relish this this kind of power over others. Yeah, you know? it's it's such a bizarre impulse to me. I, I can't relate to it at all, trying to yeah. you know, force your will on other people and, and getting off on it. It's um, mm-hmm. it, it was one of the things that surprised me the most about this whole COVID thing was how quickly people were on board with, with the agenda and were just ready to comply. I gotta say, I wasn't surprised because I saw the mob and how they act, you know, when they acted that way towards me. And I've seen their attacks through cancel culture and other vehicles that they use to, you know, to enforce compliance. And I, you know, I, so I wasn't surprised whenever they took COVID as their next, um, as their next rationale or their next, um, I should say pretense for imposing uh, this kind of authoritarian, totalitarian impulse on others. What what did surprise you the most about this whole, the, the last The year? extent to which uh, the establishment, the political and economic establishment will go uh, to, inf- to uh, destroy so many people. Uh, 
in order to enact an agenda. Um, the extent of to which they're willing to go, that they would destroy 50% of small businesses, that they would, you know, that they would cause the suicides of many people, that they don't care about, you know, the increase in drug abuse and, and abuse and overdoses and depression and children and uh, the kind of uh, devastation that this, these policies that would, would bring about that, the fact that they don't care apparently. Um, they use this, this virus, which has a, you know, for most people is 99.5% survivable uh, and only really kills people with comorbidities and uh, people that likely might die soon anyway. And not that they, they should die earlier. I think that's a horrible thing that people die at all. But um, the fact that they would take such something with such negligible uh, detriment and and balloon it into this uh, cause of a total uh, repression and uh, oppression of by the state and their apparatuses that really shocked me. Yeah. Yeah, and so much of the effects of this last year we're not even going to see for a long time. And it's kind of like all the other government policies that have all these problems that you don't actually feel the effects of until years down the road. And then they get to blame it on something else or they get to yes. sort of obfuscate the, the, the connection between the two. And right. they just love to operate like that. And it's it's really frustrating and it's difficult to, to overcome as libertarians, especially if you're not willing to address these things in real time. Yes, it's difficult to address them in real time because they have you reacting to all these different things, these these different uh, forays they're taking into uh, these different means by which they're trying to, you know, totally abdicate our rights. Uh, it's so stunning that they would do this and that you're right that some people would not see their rights being eroded as or taken away as a problem. In fact, I spoke to somebody recently, a couple of days ago, who said, oh, I don't care about freedom. I don't think freedom's that important. Yeah, it, it's, it was unbelievable to me just how quickly they could just tear up the Bill of Rights and yeah. just control every aspect of your life. Your life, you know, you're, you had to actually watch TV to see what you were going to be allowed to do that week. And I, I just, I'm still sort of in shock at, at how quickly they were able to implement it and how long they were able to, to get away with it. And in fact, they're, they're going to bring other pretenses in again. again the, the lockdowners are actually now going to try climate change now as a means to perpetuate lockdowns or extend partial lockdowns or restraints on movement and behavior. Um, so they're just anxious. They see uh, this has been a very successful campaign for them. And next, I think, on the docket is sort of COVID climate catastrophism. Uh, yeah, no, I um, somehow they see COVID as connected to climate change. You know, everything is everything <laughs> yeah. is this one big ball of catastrophism that they use as pretenses to uh, just abrogate our, our our rights. Yeah, yeah, and if something as um, relatively benign as COVID 
uh, warrants, lockdowns, and the the end of uh, you know civilization as we used to know it. Well, then this climate change that's going to, according to Bernie Sanders, make the planet uninhabitable for, for uninhabitable for our children and our grandchildren. Well, then we definitely better lock down and, and you know do your civic duty. Otherwise, the the world's going to end. Yeah, this one has a permanent cast to it. Yeah, uh, it has a cast of permanency, and they uh, will use it. I'm afraid, and uh, so that has got to be something libertarians have to push back against because. And not just in terms of the science, which I think is dubious at best, uh, but in terms of just what they think is necessary in order to counter this so-called so-called climate crisis, which I think is another. You know, listen, I've I've come to the conclusion that leftism depends on catastrophism, and um, that it's so much a part of their program. For example, as a Marxist, I used to do this, you know. Well, there's only one way to, cure, you know, to to uh, correct the course of climate change, and that is to overthrow capitalism. Uh, capitalism is the problem. We have to overthrow it in order to save our niche, to save our survivability. It's absurd. Yeah, yeah, and there's no there's no vaccine for climate change either. So it's it, it's an ongoing thing. They can change the the definitions of everything. They can change their models whenever they want. Which, by right. the way, I always found interesting. Like, I haven't seen any new climate change projections after we sort of shut down the world for a year. You would think that that would at least change something, right? Maybe like right. a degree this way or that way. But no, no. no, it's it's all still doom and gloom. Yes, that's that's the program. It just goes back. You know, you could look at a history of catastrophism on, uh, and how they've tried. It was the population explosion. It was the ozone layer. It was uh, any number of things was going to cause our demise, and therefore these were used as rationales to uh, to curtail our rights. Yeah, yeah. When I was a kid, all I heard about was the ozone layer. Yeah, and the ozone layer. The ozone, and, and now you don't hear anything about it. Yeah, right. There was these huge holes in the ozone layer, and we were all going to fry. Right. Uh, you know, from UV rays or whatever, and it was going to kill us. And uh, uh, just it's one thing after another. And so I think a lot of the pop population is really quite, uh, quite wary and quite keen to what they're doing and what, what this is about. This is one uh, catastrophism after another. And uh, so that I think there's going to be resistance to it. Definitely. Yeah, yeah, I certainly hope so. I, I just feel like there's there's so many people that want to re resist it and and speak out against it, but like you said, that mob will come after you and they can destroy your life. And, and yeah. so it's just a lot easier for people to just you know completely disagree with everything that's been going on, but you don't say anything. They don't say anything or do anything differently. Yeah, because you know that's what they showed us with cancel culture and so forth. Just how ruthless this could get and how you can be wiped out financially, you know, socially, your stat, your social press status is just totally destroyed. Uh, you know, you can be basically gulagged within minutes. And uh, that's, that's, that's what I've been writing about quite a bit. Let's take a quick second and thank one of our other sponsors for today's show, and that is Zipix Toothpicks. These are nicotine-infused toothpicks, and they are also flavored. 
So it, it's the best of both worlds. You get a delicious tasting toothpick that also can curb that nicotine craving. It is a great smokeless alternative to cigarettes. It's a great alternative to all the other over-the-counter nicotine alternatives. It's cheaper than all of those. It's uh, less cumbersome than a lot of them. I mean, it's just a toothpick. You can pop it into your mouth anywhere you want. There's no mess. You can take as much nicotine out of it as you want. You can save it for later if you don't need all the nicotine that's in the toothpick. You can do it indoors. You can do it outdoors. You can do it without anybody knowing that you're actually getting a nicotine fix. So go to ZipixToothpicks.com. Use promo code FICTION for 10% off your order. He's got six different flavors. You can get the ultimate flavor pack if you want to try them all. If you're a smoker or you uh, you chew tobacco or you're on the nicotine gum or the patch or something like that, try out these toothpicks as a, an alternative to what you're already doing. You won't be sorry. So make sure you go to zippixtoothpicks.com. That's Z-I-P-P-I-X toothpicks.com. Order yourself a bunch of these nicotine-infused flavored toothpicks so that you have the perfect alternative to get you that nicotine fix that you need from time to time. Zippixtoothpicks.com, promo code FICTION. Yeah, it's certainly a big topic that libertarians have to grapple with, this, this idea of especially all these social media companies and platforms, like just deplatforming you, um, yeah. keeping, keeping your money, taking away your, your ability to earn. And this collusion that you you talked about in, in your speech between the government and these corporations, where they're, they're basically bypassing any of the restrictions that were left, and there weren't much of them left on the government. And apparently, no matter what we put in those documents, they'll, they'll find a way around it. And they, now they can just use corporations to, to do their dirty work for them. Absolutely. That's what they're doing. And then those, those have uh, plausible deniability in terms of taking away our rights, because they're private. And that's they can do whatever they want. And uh, the state has passed off a lot of its functions to these organs. Uh, so I think the state, I think that I like to distinguish between the government and the state. Uh, I think the state is larger than the government by far, and it's inclusive of these state apparatuses, um, including big tech, but also big pharma. Um, and any other arsenal that they can draw, any, any other weapons from the arsenal they can draw on them. So, you know, you have, for example, you go on an airline and you, uh, the, the uh, flight attendant is effectively deputized to have you arrested. Yeah. So if, they're not, if they're not state agents, I don't know what, what, what is. Um, if you don't put the mask on between bites, between bites now, yeah. Yeah. You could be thrown off the plane and possibly arrested. Yeah, that, that is a, a very important distinction. And the, the idea that uh, like all of these corporations are just doing this on their own and there's no uh, outside government influence is just absolutely absurd. But you, you will still get that just boring libertarian take. Oh, well, it's a private company. They I got that yesterday an interview on RT where this guy was saying, you know, Facebook is perfectly in their right to uh, censor and 
blacklist and the 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 list and you know black uh, completely black out any opinion they don't like it's there it's like coming onto my front yard but the difference is and i've been trying to uh, articulate this in many ways this is this is not true <laughs> one of the reasons it's not true first of all is that they receive startup funny money through incutel which is the cia's you know financing uh operation and second of all they are an agent of the state in that they allow backdoor access to the NSA. Uh, they uh, cooperate with the, with the government in, in sharing information at all times. I mean, it's possible that they were even a, a brainchild of the CIA. That's very possible. Yeah, and if they don't like what Facebook is doing or something, they'll they'll drag you in front of Congress and and give you the third degree. And, and there's always that sort of implicit threat that you know they can they can ruin your life if if you don't do what they want you to do. Right. Yeah. So, what do you think is the solution to this? Like, what should we as libertarians advocate for? What can we do to sort of slow this thing down and turn this ship around? Because it just seems like a really tough uphill battle. Yeah, I mean, first we've got to understand it, and second of the uh, secondly, uh, we have to um, create networks of networks that are resistant to all this uh, economic and social networks that are able to withstand this and to be so. Individuals need to become uncancelable in some sense. And this, I think, is done by virtue of becoming entrepreneurial in some way um, and having independent means, independent means of income and survival. Uh, so that means, uh, of course, uh, cryptocurrency is part of it, but it's not the full solution because I think they're going to bring it down. Um, China's banned uh, Bitcoin, for example, uh, and that could you know, if China's doing it, you can you can imagine it being done elsewhere, because China's the model for all this. Uh, so I think the the, the solutions are uh, creating independence from these corporate state oligarchical uh, tyrants, and uh, becoming uncancelable, becoming. Uh, you know, libertarian network of islands, if you will. Okay. Are, are you a fan of um, agorism at all? Are you familiar? Yeah, with that? yeah. definitely. Okay. Yeah. Um, I mean, they, they make some, some pretty good arguments to, to this end where you just sort of have to, you got to create your own networks where you can operate outside of the, this whole, um, I don't know, cabal or Leviathan, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Uh, it could be that we're just, keeping alive liberty in a sort of just a gestational state for the future. It's not like we're going to, it's possible that we won't be able to experience liberty to the extent that we should in our lifetimes, but that we have to mean, we have to become the germ for, for liberty in the future. It, it, it's not just for ourselves that we do this. Uh, we have to do this for pos posterity. Uh, because without these germs of liberty, uh, then it could die as an idea even. And if that happens, then, you know, there's nothing but tyranny. Yeah. 
Yeah. And we are, we are really flirting with that these days. It's, um, it's just crazy how, how, um, they've been able to pervert this idea of capitalism, Mm -hmm. create this, you know, it it drives me crazy when you hear politicians talk about this, like public private partnership, you know, like, like they did with the federal reserve where it's like, oh yeah, technically we're a private company, but, uh, you're, you know, the chairman's appointed by the president and like, that's, that's just a way for them to extend the state power is using corporations as partners, i.e. apparatuses of the state. And then those corporations benefit because they, they drive out competitors, they, get, they monopolize industries. This is what they're trying to do with the um, environmental, social, and governance scores, uh, the index which is u- being used to direct investments toward the comp- corporations that have uh, higher ESG scores and away from those that don't. And they're going to starve off, you know, individual corporations. They're going to stop starve off industries, in fact, in effect as well through this. This is coming all the way from the top, and that is the largest asset managers in the world are 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 dictating the the flow of investments towards ESG uh, proper uh, corporations and producers. So this is a way of starving and choking off competition. So this is a monopoly enterprise. And I call it corporate socialism, because what they're attempting to establish is a corporate uh, set of monopolies on top, and actually existing socialism for the bottom. And that's why you see the uh, universal basic income idea becoming popularized, because there, there will be vassals of this neo-feudalism, of course, those who work for those corporations. But underneath of that, you're going to have a level of, of serfs, in effect, who are going to, you know, they're, they're looking at living on this kind of static income, universal basic income, and so forth, which is really almost being instituted through unemployment at this point, and, and the stimulus checks and all that. So... This is kind of, and then they, they, these things could be tied to compliance, and that that becomes a way of locking in serfdom. Yeah, yeah, and that's, I mean, it's crazy how how they find these back doors into getting exactly what they want. Like even um, they like they shut down all of the small businesses. <laughs> throughout the the entire country, Uh, but they allow the big corporations to operate, you know, they're still doing fine. Um, They'll dole out trillions of dollars to those corporations. They'll give the the people a little bit of something, but the only places they can go spend it is at Amazon. At those corporations. Yeah. So this is, this is the monopoly. This is the corporate socialist paradigm. And that's what I've been trying to get across that. What is socialism, but, um, but monopoly. It's monopoly over production by the state. Mm-hmm. Well, this is just monopoly by corporate partners of the state who are approved by the state to be monopolies. And so this is just a corporate monopolies on top and socialism for the vast majority. And, and that's what socialism is, monopoly. And everybody has no choice but to either work for these monopolies or and to purchase from them. And that's what they're that's the agenda. And I think that's the agenda of the great reset. Uh, 
The Great Reset is the means to bring corporate socialism about. And uh, what do you make of this, like this whole global push for, you know, to sort of connect these governments together? Uh, we're, we're seeing that they want, you know, the U.S. wants a global corporate tax. Um, what, what's going on there? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that stands as a impediment to this kind of global corporate monopolization with the state in, in, in partnerships is national sovereignties of various types. Uh, for example, I think the United States being the main bastion of sovereignty that needs to be eradicated in order to uh, complete the agenda. So by instituting, um, what would you say, global corporate tax, and then also possibly universal digital uh, currency. Mm -hmm. uh, this would affect uh, complete control over spending and debt. And also uh, you could see a scenario in which a, un a universal uh, digital currency is used to basically push people out of the market totally if they're not compliant, ESG compliant producers. Uh, and this just all tends towards monopoly. Yeah. And then there's just nowhere to go. There's nowhere to hide. Right? Right. Like now, if you're, if you're taxed too high, maybe you can move to a different state or sometimes you, you move your company to a different country. But yeah, if they get their tentacles into every single one of these company or countries, there's, there's not going to be anywhere to go. And then I guess at least we could put an end to that stupid social contract argument where if you don't like it, you can leave. Yeah, right. Because <laughs> there won't be anywhere to go. Right. And I think the global corporate tax is a way to crush the smaller corporations because the large corporations will be able to sustain. Uh, they'll be able to, uh, to sustain themselves under that. In fact, they'll, they'll be better off because taxes help monopolies, of course, because it keeps out competitors, just like regulations do the same thing. Uh, it makes the cost of entry much higher, so it keeps competitors out. That's why, you know, Facebook and social and social media sites and they, they don't care. They want regulation. They want it because regulation is their friend. Yeah, yeah. They they have the scale to to handle all of those extra costs. Um, and and if you're just starting up, man, you don't have you don't have a prayer. It's right. Uh, yeah, and. Anybody that thinks just because they're a private company or a corporation or something like that, that these are free market capitalists, you have another thing coming. No. And, and even if they were, um, even if they had inclinations toward that, the fact that their competitors get all this um, help from the government, they're, they're going to, you know, try to get a piece of that pie as well, because that's the only way that you can remain remotely competitive. Just look at China. That's the model in, in general. Yeah. Uh, China has state capitalism, in fact, that is state-sanctioned capitalist production, or I should call it for-profit production. <coughs> because if capital, if by capitalism we mean free market, it's not that. It is state-controlled capital, uh, free market, uh, for-profit production, and there's no middle class, and that's the uh, that's the goal. They want to reduce income, they want to reduce consumption, they want to reduce uh, prospects for the vast majority in the so-called first world. Yeah, 
And um, it, it really is just sort of freaking me out a little bit. What, Sorry. Where, where do we go from here? Like, <laughs> give, a, give us uh, something to be optimistic about. Well, I, like I said before, I think this is a, we have a window of opportunity remaining. And that window is the time between now <coughs> and the total monopolization of everything, of all production and, and all business and all inter enterprise. And, and at this juncture, we must exploit it and we must build resistance islands to it. And whether that means some sort of uh, secessionism in a broader sense, or not like uh, or, uh, moving people to different places where freedom is actually valued or whether it means networked through distance and time. Uh, most likely it will be the latter. It's not gonna work vis-a-vis -vis localities, I don't think. Like the, what is that movement? The um, freedom cells. You know, which is an interesting movement, it's, but it's locally based. And I don't think localism is going to actually work in that sense. It's got to be networked across space. Uh, and that's still possible. We still have the ability. I'm, I'm part of a startup right now, uh, a startup educational project called American Scholars that is attempting to create education, a different universe of education outside of the K through PhD indoctrination that's happening. Uh, and so there's still a window for these kinds of, op, you know, such startups up operations to, to make it. And as, as long as they do, um, there's a possibility of withstanding this, at least re remaining a, a, a remnant of liberty for the future. Like I said before, we may have to recalibrate our thoughts a little bit about what we're what we represent. We, we may not represent um, the actualization of liberty in our lifetimes. I think we should probably get that across and get that understood, <laughs> and that we Temporary may just be a vestige of liberty for the future. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, somebody's got to do it. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. You um, do you have any kids? I have three. You have three. How, They're all grown adults. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So I, I two mean, or two are libertarians and one is woke. So uh -oh. I, I got two out of three ain't bad, but no, I love them all. But there's nothing I can do about the prevailing ideology and how it got to one of them, who's a complete COVID lockdown freak, and. Uh, is completely such that I, she has a new child and I've seen him twice. Yeah. Yeah. It's weird how even just within families, the, the different uh, approach or mentality to this, like I have, I have three sisters of my own and yeah, one of them is like very pro lockdown, like will not bring the, the, the kids around anybody. And um, there's, yeah, there's just not much you can do about it. One thing that I think is good that, that came out of this whole thing was all of the, the homeschooling right. that's been going on and, and keeping the kids out of these indoctrination prisons. Mills, indoctrination mills, right? Because they're just turning out woke replicas. 
these are not, they're not training people to think, they're training them to regurgitate phrases and thought and ideology. Uh, they're not teaching anything like thought or knowledge. They're teaching a palette of acceptable thought patterns, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's, it's weird because if they're, they're so concerned about um, alternative viewpoints or ideas getting out there that they have to deplatform people and censor them. But if they actually just taught people to think for themselves, um, maybe they wouldn't be uh, so susceptible to like these crazy ideas that, that they're afraid of people um, actually uh, taking up. I mean, what are, what are the schools? This, if it weren't for the school system and the, public education system, I, I don't think this total indoctrination would be possible. So public schools and the state-run education apparatuses are a real, they're, they're, the, they're the foundation of, of servitude, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, I, I guess we're, we're kind of coming up on time here. But I, I, one more thing I wanted to ask you was, of your 11 books, which one should people read first? Oh, that's a great question. Well, if you want to know about the, I'll have to, I have to qualify my answer if you don't. Sure. If you want to know about my transformation from Marxist to libertarian, read Springtime for Snowflakes. That's a, a memoir. <clears throat> if you're interested in knowing about, uh, this notion of corporate socialism and my theory about it and uh, how it connects to all of these elements like wokeness and the, the big digital uh, conglomerate that's running opinion and so forth, read Google Archipelago. If you want to know about the future, read Thought Criminal. Okay. <laughs> there you go. Well, I actually, I think two of those are also available because I was looking for some audio books of yours. I, uh, I'm a big audio book guy and I know yeah. Google Archipelago is on there. And then the um, Springtime for Snowflakes. Springtime for Snowflakes. Yeah. Yeah. The problem with Springtime for Snowflakes is the reader mispronounced things uh, like Foucault. He called him Foucault. Uh, <laughs> now he is a cult, but uh, there is a Foucault cult. But I, I just couldn't go through every minute of the of the reading and correct everything. It's just too much work. Yeah. So I mean, I told them, but you know. Anyway, they're 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 on there. Google Archipelago is well done. Uh, I still think Springtime for Snowflakes is well done. If you just go in with uh, under the proviso that some of the some of the names and words are mispronounced, but. Uh, it's still yeah available through audiobook and thought criminal will be coming out in audiobook excellent what, are you working on anything right now what do you got going on well as i said i'm working on this startup mm -hmm. and my next book is i'm still gestating it you know i did write four books in two years <coughs> and that's not the most i've ever done i had one one year i had three books in one year uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm not sure that I'll have another book this year, but it's still possible. And if I do, it'll be <clears throat> along the same lines of what I'm talking about here in terms of, I'm, I've always been trying to figure out how all the pieces fit together, like how wokeness and the COVID response and all that kind of fits into the great reset idea. 
and corporate socialism. I, I've been trying to understand how the pieces fit together and how it all works to what end. So that that would be what it would be about. Yeah, there, there's definitely uh, some people out there that are convinced it's like a, a CIA plot or, or something like that. I don't that. know about that. I mean, the CIA, I think, is follows direction. I think the other possibility is that I would collect a series of um, very short passages that I've written, uh, kind of the gems, and call it Michael's Little Red Pill Book oh. uh, and as a counter to Mao's Little Red Book. Yeah. Yeah. That would be a, that would be great, um, man. A, any way that we can sort of convert more people to to this ideology, I, I am all for it. And with the attention span most people have, a, a little book like that with uh, short little essays or something, short passages, yeah, yeah. like Mao took passages out of his books or essays and put them all together, and then they had to memorize them. The difference here is you won't have to memorize them. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. Well, um, where where should I send everybody? How do they find you? How do they find all your work? Plug uh, first of all, I want to emphasize Twitter. I, I really deserve a bigger Twitter follower following. So it's at the anti PC prof. And then my website has everything. Uh, MichaelRecklinwald.com. That's all my books, essays, media appearances, how to get in touch with me. Uh, I even have a photo gallery. Uh, of my readers and uh, media personages that I've been, uh, that I've appeared on different shows and stuff. So michaelrechtenwald.com, no H, no K. Okay. Yeah. And I'll, I'll make sure to link to everything in the, um, in the description for this episode. Well, thanks for coming on, man. This was a, a fascinating conversation. I, I will talk to you any day if, you, if you're willing. Okay. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. All right. Take care. It's great to be here. All right. Well, there you have it. The great Michael Rechtenwald, the professor. What a what a great guy, man. I really enjoyed that. Hopefully you guys did too. It's always kind of hard to tell how these interviews are going, but I think usually if I enjoy them, you guys do too. But don't forget to uh, follow him on Twitter. He is at the anti-PC professor or uh, professors abbreviated, I think P-R-O-F. And follow me as well at Pedal Fiction. Um, that's gonna do it. We can we can wrap up there. I'll get you guys out of here on that. Do me a favor though. Um, download and subscribe to this show. Uh, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and leave me a rating and review five stars if you think the show is worth it. And um, just share the show with somebody that you, that you think needs to hear it. I thought this was a, a fascinating conversation. These are very important topics that libertarians need to grapple with. And uh, yeah, if you guys can do all that for me, I will be back on Tuesday with a brand new episode for you. And until then, you guys know the drill. Just keep on peddling that so-called fiction. Peace.